James chapter 3. I know you're shocked that we're in the book of James. Chapter 3, verse 1, let not, oh, by the way, James, half-brother of Jesus Christ, 60-plus imperatives, pastoral, brotherly, early, this is maybe the oldest letter in the New Testament, written to the church, dispersed like seed because of persecution out of Jerusalem, the mother church. James is not only the half-brother of Jesus, he is the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. He is its spokesperson. And James writes these words to God's people saying, this is what real Christianity looks like. These are the biblical convictions. This is the lifestyle, quality, and character, both what you do and don't do. And we're going to begin with what not to do. Chapter 3, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. So again, this brotherly flavor, your family members. Knowing that as such, we, includes himself, will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, a mature man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also is the tongue. It's a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. Watch this. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. The Apostle James, to God's people, the subject is your words, your tongue. I wrestled with how to connect chapter 2 to chapter 3. I would suggest to you that chapter 2 talks about the works that validate genuine faith. And we argued from chapter 2, verse 14, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? The answer, no, it cannot. Because saving faith is more than words faith. 
But something else is also true. Saving faith is more than words faith, but chapter 3, saving faith must be validated by our words faith. Chapter 2 talks about saving faith more than words. Chapter 3 talks about the work of words that validate your faith. Chapter 3 talks about the work of words. Real faith really works, and one of the chief verifying and kingdom-building works of a true Christian is found in the work of his words. One commentator, Tasker, writes, Words are works. Words can work to build the kingdom, or they can work to destroy it. The whole third chapter of the book of James has to do with the tongue. The words one speaks publicly and privately, the good the tongue accomplishes and the evil it causes. James has already touched on this pointedly and soberly in chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, a God-fearer, and yet does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart, he deludes himself. This man's religion is empty, worthless, vain. The tongue is an indicator, it's a signal light that validates the reality of the life you have or do not have in Christ. Chapter 3, now James develops a powerful and fuller perspective on the little member that has such power to impact for good or not good. Let me summarize the big idea. Real Christianity is validated by its understanding of and use of the tongue. Real Christianity is validated by its understanding of and use of the tongue. And now, with the beginning of chapter 3, James begins with the sobering truth meant for those who talk a lot. Teachers. James begins with the sobering truth for those who would instruct others in the doctrine and practice of Christianity. Now, I want to, at the very outset, I want to begin with the recognition that there's a technical reality about whom he's speaking to. He's talking to teachers, people who declare and instruct on the nature of the Word of God and the practice of Christianity. But if you're a parent or if you're a friend, or if you're a discipler, in some level, generally speaking, you need to hear these words as applicable to you. Because they have to do with someone who works with their words for good or not good. And it's a warning. And I want to begin with the test and the trouble of the teacher. The test and the trouble of the teacher. Let me give you a few background thoughts. First of all, by way of grammar, James is saying, stop becoming many teachers. An action is taking place. Apparently, there were a lot of people aspiring to instruct and teach to achieve the prestige and the prominence of the teacher Let not many of you means stop becoming teachers, my brethren. 
ground or reason why you ought to reconsider is because as a teacher, you incur a stricter judgment. No more responsible for more. Say a lot, responsible for what you say. Think about it and stop doing it. It's dangerous. And I wrote as the title to this lesson with you this for you this morning. If I'm entitling it, I'm going to talk about, I'm going to call it inaccuracy and hypocrisy. The high cost of talking too much and living too little. Inaccuracy and hypocrisy, the high cost of talking too much and living too little. I gave it another subtitle, the high cost of not knowing it or of knowing it, saying it, and not living it. Real Christian teachers humbly and carefully teach. Do you hear the words? Humbly and carefully. Seeking to do what they say privately and publicly. I'm giving you the big ideas to start our journeys because I want to make sure you hear the priority that James is promoting by way of the truth about which he is speaking. Real Christian teachers humbly and carefully teach, seeking to do what they say privately and publicly, because genuine faith is proven by those who instruct others by living it, not just saying it. Saving faith is more than words faith. It must be validated by our words faith. All right, let's talk about teachers. Teachers in the early church were believers who were given a chance to give a word of testimony. They would stand up and they would bear witness to a work of God in their life or an exhortation from their understanding of what they had been taught or read. They were considered critical and foundational contributors to the foundation of the church. They are regarded with prestige and honor. Listen to Acts 13, 1 through 3. Now there were at Antioch in the church prophets and teachers. And they're named Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manian, Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord, the prophets and the teachers, and they were fasting in the Holy Spirit, they were told by the Holy Spirit to set apart for the Spirit of God, for the work of God, Barnabas and Saul, to the work which I have called them. And when they fasted and prayed, they commissioned Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas, and sent them away. So the teachers were considered authoritative leaders like the prophets. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to just give you a little context so you can appreciate the danger and the temptation that God's people sometimes have. Because it has to do with the priority and prominence of the teacher. Why would you aspire to be a teacher? Why would James have to say, stop seeking to be a teacher? Well, because to be a teacher was to be a somebody. To be somebody prominent. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, talks about the structure and the nature of the church, and he says in verse 19 of chapter 2, you're no longer strangers and aliens, 
Why? Because you've been reconciled by the peacemaking work of Jesus Christ. You're no longer on the outside. You're united with Christ. You're among the people of the people of God. You are fellow citizens with the saints. Now watch verse 19 at the end, chapter 2. You're of God's household. You're part of God's family. You belong to his household because of the work of Christ. Now watch verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into the holy temple in the Lord and in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 11, Christ, victory gifts, wins a great victory on the cross, descends, ascends, and these ascension victory gifts, which Pastor John has been talking about previous days, he gave some as apostles, apostolos, sent ones, representative of God, and some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. In the church, there are prominent persons, prophets, apostles, teachers, evangelists, pastor teachers, And they are significant contributors to the work of God in the house of God, the church. And we read in chapter 2, verse 20, the foundation had to do with the apostles and the prophets. Apostles were 12, one being replaced, Judas, because of his betrayal with Matthias in Acts chapter 1. They are apostolos, sent ones. They're ambassadors, representatives, messengers. They are technically men appointed by Jesus Christ to represent Jesus Christ. They're authorized representatives. And then you have Paul, the last apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, a couple of things about apostles. They were chosen directly by Jesus. Number two, they performed the signs of an apostle. This is 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. They performed the signs of an apostle, signs, wonders, and mighty works. It was a pattern. It was a theme of their ministry. They had the capacity to do supernatural things to validate their apostleship. Why? Because some people, even today, there are people who claim, I'm Apostle Harry. I've been set apart. I've been sent. So they make this claim of apostleship, and it's, it's quite prominent in the charismatic church and in places where there is a claim of a commissioning as an authoritative representative. I represent God. God talks to me. I talk to you. You need to listen to me. I have authority and influence. I talk for God. And one of the characteristics, by way of definition, biblically, that defines whether that is a claim that is legitimate, God gave, verse 12, 2 Corinthians 12, the signs of a true apostle. They were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Signs, wonders, and miracles as a pattern of ministry because those ministries, those claims were validated by the capacity, the miraculous capacity of those who have been commissioned as apostles for God. 
chapter 2, Hebrews, verses 3 and 4. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Confirmed to us. Let me read that a little slower so you're tracking with me. Hebrews 2. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was the, at the first spoken through the Lord. So however the salvation plan was, it was communicated by the Lord Jesus. It was confirmed to us by those who heard. Who would that be? The apostles, the twelve. They heard it, he said it, they're communicating it and confirming it. Salvation is by grace alone, through Christ alone. Believe and be saved. Confess, repent, and follow the gospel. They heard it. God, verse 4, those who confirmed it, God also testifying with them, both of signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to God's own will. What is that? The confirming testimony of the apostles about the gospel that saves is validated by the miraculous sign gifts God gave those called apostles. How do you know the truth is the truth? These guys are validated by the supernatural work of God as a confirmation of the word they were confirming. An apostle was a significant office and Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you needed to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. That's what Matthias had to be when he was chosen. When the disciples were considering who's going to replace Judas, the question was, well, we need somebody who walked with Jesus. We need somebody who saw the resurrected Jesus. We need somebody who's an eyewitness because the credibility of the claims that are made can't be, I heard about it, I actually saw it. I'm a witness of it. And validating the apostles was not only the eyewitness of the resurrected Christ, it was the signs, wonders, and mighty works confirming the message of Christ, and they were chosen directly by Jesus. Matter of fact, listen to what is said by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm setting you up for teachers, okay? So don't get lost. Because apostles, this is 1 Corinthians 12. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. So in the hierarchy of God-appointed agents to promote and advance the work of God, you have the foundation of the apostles, credentialed by what they could do, by what they had seen, and by their personal appointment by Christ. And you had Paul referencing as the last apostle appointed by Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you. This is the good news that saves which also you received, in which also you stand. So you received it point in time, you're standing in it at the time, by which also you are saved, saved and being saved. It's a perfect tense. The gospel I preach does an immediate act, 
positionally transforming you, imputing to you a righteousness not your own. Not because you go to church, not because you're baptized, not because you're involved in social work and kindness to others. You're transformed at a point in time by the saving gospel. And that saving gospel point in time manifests itself in saving effects called sanctification over time. You're saved and being saved. Now, why do I say that? Because the passage we're going to read says your tongue is a problem. If you're a teacher, you need to be careful. If you talk a lot, you're prone to stumble because there are no perfect men. And if you're a teacher, you're a wordsmith or a word instructor, you are prone to fumble And the good news is you are in a journey of maturing in your capacity to represent the truth and live it. So this is not a, hey, condemn yourself today about the guilt of your inability. It's to sober you about how much you talk, how much you assume when you do talk, and how important it is to live what you say when you talk and to recognize you're going to verbally fumble no matter how much you think you know or how long you have talked. Apostles were at the top of the spiritual hierarchy when it comes to the foundation of the church. 1 Corinthians 15, you were saved if you hold fast the word, verse 2, almost forgot to read this to you, which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Here's the gospel. That he was buried because he really died. He was raised on the third day, validating acceptance of his work according to the Scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, watch this, then to all the apostles. Now watch verse 8. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles. I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. All right, plainly put. To be an apostle, you had to see the resurrected Lord. I'm the last one. I'm the least one. Out of all of them, I am the most undeserving, which is a big statement because Peter denied Christ. But it's by God's grace that I am what I am. I'm an apostle of the truth that makes persecutors powerful proclaimers that makes someone who injures the family of God an advancer of the family of God. That's what the gospel of God does. And I, Paul, qualified by virtue of 
Christ appearing to me, Christ appointing me to be an apostle, I have been called to the work of promoting the gospel among the Gentiles. Category number two, second, the prophets. Prophets, prophetes, one who speaks in the place of, a spokesman for God. They are foundations of the church. Why? Because God was revealing New Testament truth through apostles and prophets. And the prophets, like Old Testament prophets, were distinguished by the reception of and the communication of the truth of God revealed to them. They got it, and they shared it, and they powerfully proclaimed it. Because the church, young, didn't have the benefit of one of these. How did the church begin? Apostles. Where did it get its truth and revelation? Prophets. Who propagated the truth and revelation given by the prophets, validated by God? Teachers. Teachers were critical. They had high importance in the church. Who was responsible to mature and educate the local congregation in the revealed truth and doctrines of God, in the kingdom of God, among the family of God, in the household of God? Teachers commissioned by God, gifted by the Spirit of God. They had high importance in the church. Teachers worked within a congregation, and it was their great importance that would be, in, they would, because of the, the importance of their role, new converts would be entrusted to teachers. Teachers, their duty was to instruct in the nature of God, His work of salvation, His means and His intention for all believers. In the early church, you didn't just become a Christian, you were discipled in the things taught by Christ. Remember the Great Commission, the call of God, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That'll happen in this morning and teaching them all the things that I've commanded you. Lord talking, I want you to instruct them. Apostles lay the foundation, prophets deliver the revelation, and teachers are the propagating tool of God to educate the people of God, to live for the glory of God, and fulfill the mission of God. Teachers matter, and teachers were of high importance. They were regarded, they were prominent, Technically, when James says, go back to the book of James chapter 3 now. When it says, let not many of you become teachers, as I said, it's an imperative with a big X over it. Stop becoming teachers. The word become, genesta, when referring to persons, it means to come into a new state of being, to have a new identity. Now, I emphasize that because what he is saying is stop, stop identifying yourself as a prominent person, the teacher. Stop identifying yourself as someone prominent, someone of significant rank. Stop it. In the early church, teachers were of the first rate importance. Whenever their name was mentioned as a teacher, it was mentioned with a tone of honor. Listen to this. This is a little history. The Christian teacher 
entered into a perilous heritage. In the church, he took the place of the rabbi in Judaism. Rabbi, a name which means, are you ready? Great one. Rabbi was treated in a way that was liable to ruin the character of any man. His very name means my great one. It's funny, Will Varner used to teach in the second hour in Sojourners. He works with me at the university. He would see me and say, Rabbi, I had no idea how meaningful that was. (laughs) Harry, my great one. (laughs) Let's talk teacher, Rabbi. His name means great one. Everywhere he went, he was treated with the utmost respect. Listen, when James was writing, this is the way it was. It was actually held that a man's duty to his teacher or rabbi exceeded his duty to his parents. Why? Because his parents only brought him into the life of the world, but his teacher brought him into the life of the world to come. It was actually said that if a man's parents and a man's teacher were captured by an enemy, the rabbi or the teacher must be ransomed first. It was considered meritorious to take the teacher into your household and support his every need and care. Can I read that again? I'm teasing. (laughs) Meritorious to take him into your household and take care of his every need. Listen, it was desperately easy easy for the teacher, says one commentator, to become the kind of person who Jesus depicted as a spiritual tyrant an ostentatious ornament of piety, a lover of the highest place at any function, a person who gloried in the most subservient respect, showed him in public. William Barclay writes, no role has greater potential for spiritual or intellectual pride than that of the teacher. So let's just pause for a minute. What is the danger that James is attempting to mitigate against? Pursuing a position of prominence that promotes pride because I have become, as an identity, I'm the teacher. Listen, your identity will never be the teacher. Because teacher is not an identity, it's a function. It's a spiritual gift. It's a service. It doesn't elevate you above anybody. To be a teacher of God's word is not the path to prominence. It's the path to danger. And it's dangerous because it promotes pride. Many of you, the propensity to seek recognition and prominence. I'm going to give you some perspectives and thoughts to note, many of you, that's what the text says, many of you, the propensity to seek recognition and prominence, let not many of you become teachers. Implication, many were wanting to be teachers. They wanted to assume the role of instructing. They wanted to have the identity of the teacher. Here's a truth. There is a tendency for Christians to prematurely and naively desire and assume the role of teacher. A position of dignity and desirability. 
Listen, there's a natural tendency in our humanity, slash our depravity, I believe, to be the person who knows and recognize as someone worth listening to. Listen, all you have to do is watch how many people give their opinion on the Internet. Whether they know anything or not, they've got something to say. You know why that is? Because how in our humanity is the desire to want to be listened to, to have something to say. And what James says is stop. Stop that because it promotes pride. It's not your identity. You don't know as much as you think you know, and if you know it, you're responsible for it. You're greatly responsible for it. You know the rabbis of old, Matthew 23, they love the places of honor at the banquets, the chief seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and the title of rabbi by which they are addressed. I like this, Jesus said, but you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. I'm Harry. I teach the Bible. But the idea of the teacher, there's one teacher. John MacArthur's the best Bible teacher on the planet, in my opinion. But there's one teacher. He is a brother gifted by the Holy Spirit to communicate the truth, and he's responsible for the truth he communicates. And so are we when we open God's word and promote the truth from it. Listen to 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What is the outcome then, brothers and sisters, Paul to the church at Corinth? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. All things are to be done for edification. You know what that is? Edification is for building somebody else up. Housed in that statement is everybody's got something to say. And instead of saying it for the benefit of the body, they say it for the benefit of edifying them themselves. Why are you doing that? Teachers, it's in us. It's something we aspire to. It's something that we seem to want to do. We tend to express a truth opinion or give an instruction prematurely and presumptively without measuring the consequence of inaccuracy and hypocrisy. I want to give you a second thought. Not only the danger of pride and the assumption of this identity and privilege, but number two, the danger of a lack of teachability. An implication of become is that your identity is that of the learned one, and housed in that is you're not prone to accept instruction or critique. I'm the teacher. I know. Let me tell you something about teachers. They learn. They keep on learning. Leaders learn. Teachers learn. Parents learn. Your teaching role is not your identity as one who instructs but does not learn. Real faith commits to a life of humble learning. No matter where you are on the journey of instruction, maturity, and the truth, you have more to learn and you can be taught by any brother. 
Real faith commits to a life of humble learning. Number three, a third danger, not just the danger of a lack of teachability, but this warning is the danger of inaccuracy and hypocrisy. We, James includes himself, chapter 3, knowing that as such, this is the ground or reason for stopping because you know you've got this conviction You didn't just hear this at church on Sunday. This beats in your heart. You know that as such, you will incur a stricter judgment. The word is krima. It comes from krenao, which means to separate, discriminate, or distinguish. You will be set aside as a teacher, one who knows, one who instructs others, in a separate distinguishing judgment. Your test will be stricter. Your evaluation will be different than the non-teacher. When I was in high school, I uh, took karate. It's called karate do. It was a combination of karate and judo. And uh, there were different levels. And when you got your, when you first started, you got a white belt. White belt meant meant you just paid the fee. You aspired, but you were just starting. Then it was white, then it was blue, then it was green, then it was red, then it was brown, then it was black. And there would be testing. The instructors would test. If you wanted to go from whatever color belt you had to the belt that was better, you had to be tested And there's a thing called kata where you go through a number of different movements that were preparing you to defend yourself or to do what you needed to do when you needed to do it. You were evaluated by your ability to precisely reproduce the expectation of those movements. And it was interesting to watch the instructors deal with Harry the white belt and Harry the green belt wanting to be a red belt. And then when Harry wanted to go from a brown belt to a black belt, It was nearly impossible because what was accepted as a red belt was not accepted as a black belt. It was discrimination at the highest level. (laughs) Guess what's going to happen to the person who assumes the place and responsibility of the teacher? Hey, you go over here. Because the standard for you, the know it and share it, is an evaluation which involves two things. Did you get it right, and did you live what you said? Listen, the judgment seat, the Bema seat, where believers will be measured, is not the same by way of the standard of measurement. There is a stricter assessment. For the person who says they know, well, Harry, did you get it right? And then did you manage to live what you said? And we're going to talk about the tongue. You remember, how many of you were here last Sunday when we talked through 1 Peter chapter 3 in the main service with me? This is not a test of accountability. You weren't there? It was so good. You know, there's some verses in there that says, and we read them together, you want to love life and see good days? You've got to put an immediate stop to injurious speech. 
You can't use any words that injure people. Zero. You can't use nicer words that injure people. Remember that? Man, that is a bummer. When it comes to the assessment, it's one thing for you to hear it. Because in the hearing of it, you're responsible for it. But I'll tell you who's really responsible for it. The guy standing in the pulpit saying it. Sympatheo. Talked about that word. Engaging, feeling with. I was thinking this week, how many of you pray daily for the brothers and sisters in the Ukraine? Me neither. Do you think that's okay? Now, you heard sympatheo, but I preach sympatheo. You don't want to be in my line. That's the warning and the trouble with a teacher. When you tell your kids, you better get it right. It better not be the opinion you heard or the preference you have. When you say this is what God says, you better get it right. And if you're going to say it, know you are expected to live it. And it's not just because your kids think you should. And it's not because Cornerstone thinks I should. It's because he knows that I should. Stop becoming a teacher because as such, when you aspire to that, you identify with that, it promotes pride. It, it reduces teachability. I'm somebody. I know. You ought to be able to be taught by a child, not just teach children. You're not too good for any believer, nor am I. You don't have to be seminary trained to have something to say to grow a teacher who's still learning. Treat people with the recognition that I might have a responsibility, but I don't know it all. And if I am the person opening my mouth saying, this is what God says, I had better get it right and not off the internet. And I better be living it. Because inaccuracy and hypocrisy have a high cost. Not just today when people roll their eyes, but someday when you're before his eyes. The next verse says, and we're all prone to fumble the ball. We all stumble in many ways. It's time to go to church.